Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me is always Eric Whitehead, our engineer and uh, just a control panel guy. And uh, the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grants, is with us as always. And, uh, and today, oh, today, I'm not going to forget this, we have Dan Fuss, who has 61 years buying low and selling high in the bond market. He is, I think, among the longest serving participants in the world fixed income markets. And this is a day of all days to have Dan Fuss on our broadcast, Evan. I mean, who else, right? It feels like an unprecedented time to me, but again, I've not been around for as long as he has. Well, I've been around. I'm going to tell Dan about uh, some of my recollections of the year 1958 is when he started. That was the year, of course, a sad year in Brooklyn because the Dodgers had uh, moved to L.A. and stuff. uh, There were things going on in the bond market, too. But speaking of the markets, before Dan comes and talks to us, I want to uh, reprise something that uh, that I said on the air at CNBC this morning as I was squawk box and very grateful to be on this, what turns out to be a really, really momentous day in markets. My goodness, I mean, rocking and rolling. Everything's green and levitating owing to Wednesday's decision by the Fed to not cut its little funds rate, but actually to, uh, right, it was kind of an announcement, right? Well, you know, that's how the market's taken it. If you look at the Fed funds futures uh, curve, there's a 100% probability of a rate cut in the next meeting and every meeting thereafter. And they're expecting more than one cut. I mean, right now, the effective Fed funds rate is about 2.37%. People are betting that by October, it's going to get down to 1.71%. So at least two or more cuts in the next, you know, several months. Well, okay, here's what I said in the air this morning. I said, um, and we have written this in grants, but because it was written, people didn't latch on to it. But when it's spoken in front of a TV camera, it's something. All right, so I said, um, apropos of the drama between President Trump and Chair Powell, you know, I said, Trump probably can't fire Powell, but Powell certainly could fire Trump, right? Just, Just a little twitch of the funds rate higher when people were expecting a lower now, I'm going to ask you this, Evan. If you were a Fed chair, wouldn't you do that just for the hell of it? Of course you would, right? You know, I, I can actually name a board of governor member who um, she once contributed to Clinton's campaign, and I, I can pretty much tell you how she would probably vote for that. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't that be sweet that Powell gets in front of this press conference and says, uh, and as usual, uh, kind of almost, almost invisible way, he has this invisible presence, but um, he'd say now quite clearly, distinctly, and forcefully, I've been thinking this over with this uh, president, and here's what I'm going to do. Every time he opens his yap, I'm going to give him 25 basis points of the upside. It's like a shock collar on a dog when he says, uh, Fed is very, very wrong. It's that 25 beeps for you, buddy. Yeah, except they'd couch it in Orwellian term. I mean, when, when they're doing quantitative easing, it's not quantitative easing. It's large-scale asset purchases. Yeah, you're right. It's not we're cutting rates below zero. It's we're near the effective lower bound. There, I, will, some Orwellian I, will, term I will walk this back. I will not say that's what he would – I'm going to say he would keep it to himself. He's working on a shock collar. I'm just going to say that he would give it to him right between his beady eyes. That's all. Yeah, so – uh, but be that as it may, I think one of the notable features of this day after the night before, after this uh, Fed non-announcement that actually was a kind of an announcement, I'd say that the leap in the gold price is perhaps uh, telling because uh, people buy gold when they, I don't know why they buy gold. They buy, they don't buy it often enough for my money, but they, when they buy it, it seems to me that they buy it because they have lost confidence to a degree in the management of uh, government's own money. But that's funny, though, because people are also betting that inflation is going to crater and we're going to go to secular stagnation and that the Fed will have to cut rates because 
economic dynamism is going to die so low. But betting on gold is almost the opposite. The, the, the idea that there is inflation still alive or debasement well, still alive. I, th- I think, I think the, the gold price is the reciprocal of the faith of the world in the people like Jay Powell. So it's uh, one divided by confidence. The lower the confidence, the higher the price. I think it, the gold price is not so much a, an expression of expectations on inflation as it is on monetary disorder. And perhaps those who are buying it expect that the experiment in radical monetary policy will come to its extreme and illogical end, entailing yet new experiments. And finally, the discrediting of this whole 10-year-old enterprise. Maybe, I don't know, George Orwell once said that you're never right on forecast except when you are kind of uh, slyly forecasting what you want to have happened, what you want to happen. So maybe that's my case in gold. But I I, I think that the the leap in the gold price, the first big day in gold in years and years, if I recall correctly, was certainly the biggest upside leap in some time is perhaps an expression of a new perception and a disapproving one of central bankers and their works, maybe. But, you know, one of the uh, features of the cognitive uh, dissonance of the moment, certainly of this as we speak, is the, uh, the stock market is leaping for joy, not because it expects secular stagnation and depression, but rather it will expect the opposite, right? Well, it's expecting a perfect amount of badness, not bad enough to actually really crash earnings, but just bad enough for the Fed to actually cut rates enough to juice the market. So they're, they're betting on kind of an optimal level of just kind of malaise. Yeah. Well, as we say around here, Evan Lorenz, we'll know more in 10 years. First of all, I want to have a kind and grateful word for our sponsor today, ZipRecruiter, and then we'll talk to Dan Fuss. How's that? Good program? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you perhaps, if you are in the business of hiring people, have had trouble doing so. I mean, this is uh, it's one of the features of our financial lives. The labor market is tight. So how do you find qualified candidates? Usually it takes a long time. Uh, too many applicants, too many false positives. And there's a, this is where a ZipRecruiter makes it easy. ZipRecruiter.com slash grant will deliver you to the site that will tell you about how you can hire better. So ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. And here it is, ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash grant. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Well, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Dan Fuss to the air. Dan is the uh, vice chairman of Luma Sales. I'm going to say he's going to get a promotion to uh, chairman, but I expect he doesn't really want that. But uh, for the moment, he is vice chairman at Luma Sales and has been for a while. And he is also, speaking of long service, the long-serving portfolio manager of the Loomis Sales Bond Fund. So Dan, it is a privilege and a pleasure to have someone with your perspective and experience and accomplishment in the bond market on the air on this historic moment, in this historic day. I'm vice chairman. By the time the calls, by the time the fiscal quarter is over, there might be a, might be a, a you know, a, a improvement in that. But actually, vice chairman for now. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> yes, and, and I, I have no intention of being chairman. Let's be clear on that. Okay, okay, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I am going to walk that one back. Dan Fuss is now <laughs> and will remain the vice chairman of the board of Lima Sales. Yeah, uh, but 
Dan, have you seen the likes of this before? I I noticed, uh, I think, 12 hours ago that uh, 12 and one half trillion dollars worth of securities worldwide were priced to nominal basis to yield less than nothing. Now, you've been in the business for 61 years <laughs> and a half, I guess. And can you help us understand? You know, I really can't. This is a new phenomenon. I, I could sort of understand it in Japan, sort of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's manipulated there. Or I should say the market prices are supported. The treasury well, manipulation is good. central Manip- bank. Manipulate is the verb. <laughs> well, the, uh, so, and, you know, and so as a result, the government debt grows and grows in proportion to the GMP or the population or what have you. And as long as you have that trust, it goes on. No incentive to save in that type of situation other than to have the money there and feel secure about it so that from a purchasing power of the money you save, you might call it the store value function, as the economists would. But when a security is priced to, to deliver a certain loss, and when that security is denominated in a currency that the central bank uh, can right. effortlessly create with a few soft taps on a keyboard, what is the nature of the safety that people think they have achieved? By well, uh, it, it's not there. Now, uh, Japan is one one thing because you're dealing more with a nominal or no income. You know, once in a while, you may get a, a couple yen for keeping your money there. You tend not to have a negative on that. Now, the star value function, if there is an actual no inflation but deflation, that would be a good yes. thing. So it's a safety thing. Uh, now, you go to Europe, you go to Germany, and you say, well, how about in Germany? I wonder what the sale of safes for individual houses have been, things like that. And you say, well, who's buying these negative yields? Is it one of my ancestors from a few hundred years ago? Well, maybe, but probably not. They probably need government bonds if they're running the local bank or things like that. But beyond that, it, it sort of boggles the mind. You say, well, gee, it's got to be hedge funds. What? Hedge funds want to be long, something with a negative return? The thing is, the prices keep going up, the yields keep going down. Yeah. And there is, as they say these days, there are factors in investing, right? And one of the preeminent factors is it's going up. Right? Yes. I guess they call it momentum. Yeah. Yes. But uh, so you have been, um, as certain parties on this telephone call, have been known to be. Um, bearish on bonds at somewhat higher yields. Let's just get that out there. That's fine. But what does one do when bonds keep racing lower in yield, higher in price, and you must keep up with the Joneses? Well, you know, that's that's a good question. Now, let me tell you what we've done. You know, a year ago, if we were talking at that point, and I think we were, I would have said, well, we're in a gradual rise in interest rates, talking in reference to the United States, for the balance of this cycle. And we were reacting accordingly. And then along about uh, trick-or-treat night, or the 1st of November, the two seemed to coincide. It became clear that Treasury was going to do one more and no more. And so then the environment changed. I should say, excuse me, the Fed was going to do one more and no more. And the environment changed. And we've sort of gone into this thing. Now, the factor that I see 
that is new. It does not explain the negative yield, but it does explain how the central banks are starting, the major ones, the reserve currency central bank, are starting to all sing the same tune for somewhat different reasons, but there's a positive covariance here, and that is that the world is becoming a more difficult place when it comes to global trade and the potential for upset. Geopolitical risk is rising. Now, this is, I think, I'm perhaps more concerned than the average person in this regard, or at least the average person on the 701 train in the morning, because I guess for whatever reason, I see some of the impact of this, not just in the financial markets, but in other things. And I'm not as well informed as the people at the Fed or the people at the Bank of England, for that matter, or the Bank of Japan. And uh, they see it too. They see the risk of macroeconomic problems owing to trade conflict. Is that the risk we're talking about? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the, our but central again, bank. But here's, here's, here's the, uh, the kind of the cognitive dissonance, as they say in uh, higher education. We see an evident flight to what is perceived to be safety on the one hand. On the yes. other hand, we see a flight into very high-value equities, which would seem to present a conflict within the same investment mind. How do we square new highs in the stock market with not only new lows, but historic 4,000-year lows, according to Homer and Sella, in vast swaths of of the debt markets? I can't figure it out. Well, uh, nor can I. But let me just add uh, one thing here. The geopolitical risk has been evident in the fixed income markets for several years now. It's just that it's changed its shape and accelerated. The move of money out of Asia, uh, out of China, pretty much halted when the clamps were put on Macau. But that didn't last long because then this overnight bid from Asia started to surface. It's coming to Taiwan and elsewhere, Hong Kong. When did that start uh, then? Uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it coincided uh, with the new regulations on the casinos in Macau. And so you couldn't uh, show up, you know, buy your chips with one currency and cash them in, in another currency and then hop on the ferry and go over to Hong Kong and make your deposit in dollars or Hong Kong dollars. So that's that more or less put an end to that. But it had nothing to do with other ways of coming out, and some of which go through Europe, and a lot goes through Europe, and other ways that comes towards higher interest rates. That's number one. You know, this happened in 1998, too. And then from reading the headlines, people say, oh, this is not looking quite so good. This is more recent between the U.S. and China, you know, Thucydides trap, et cetera, the emerging power meeting the major power. And so where's the safer place to be? Right. And we we may not be able to get there ourselves, but let's get our money there in cheaper scrapers. If we can get the kids there, that would be good, too. And so you've had that going on in Canada and the U.S. And you have another factor that doesn't make the headlines. But ever since the Thai floods here, what was it, seven, eight years ago, and the floods in the Gulf of Thailand that really upset the supply chain, you've had money moving for that reason, just fundamental business reasons. 
to try to uh, you know make the supply chain more secure. Right. So Dan, let me let me if I may, um, I want to ask you about two uh, possible historical analogies to the present day seeming buying panic in government securities. And the first uh, harkens back to the day you arrived on Wall Street. This is, I believe, 1958. And if you recall, there was a frenzy to buy government securities, especially the ones that were maturing. They were called rights to get in on the next issue of government securities on leverage that sometimes amounted to 100% of the face value of the bonds on offer. And this had to do with the expectations that the Fed would continue easy and that one could finance these securities at a handsome carry and profit by the capital gains. And that ended in the great bond panic of 1958, your first formative experience in the marketplace. And I ask you, does this not harken back a little bit to that buying panic? And do you foresee an unhappy ending to this, much as the world saw in the summer and fall of 1958, so long ago? Well, uh, as you said, I was just arriving. <laughs> I, I was a couple of weeks off an aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean. Oh, which back one? In, uh, Saratoga, CVA-60. I was on the USS Hornet, CVS-12. Wow. It's like we're brothers. You're older than I am. Yeah, I'm 106. Okay, I'm only 105. <laughs> okay, so so, so let's, uh, let's, okay, let's, let's but leave that aside rate, because you were you were so you were I, a child. I, you were a child. Uh, let's, well, let's... no, but I learned something right away. I learned something that was a really good tip-off. The other thing to recall on uh, 1958 is that you had that sharp, sharp recession. Right. That hit, and it hit particularly hard in the basic industry area. I went back to Milwaukee. Milwaukee was clobbered by that. So the bank lending had really you know, dried up because there was no demand and the banks weren't overly willing. So what did the bank do that I joined? They bought government bonds. It was a wonderful opportunity. Correct, and they did it, a lot, many of them did it on leverage, but then, then the recession ended without, no, you know, no one issued a press release saying, by the way, it's over. And yeah. then Alfred Hayes, clears his throat, and, uh, and the New York Herald Tribune uh, gets the scoop that the Fed is going to stop being accommodative and going to begin to tighten, and then everything blew up. All right, so, so that was... That then. led to a very good outcome, not for people on leverage, but that's when you got the, the aftermath, that's when you got the magic fives. Right, okay, so let's fast forward to another historical analogy, perhaps, and that is the retest of the highs in yield in 1984. This is a little bit uh, beyond the prehistoric. Oh, I remember that very, 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 very well. Okay, so everyone uh, had been conditioned by a bear market that began in 1981 and had lasted at least till 1981 when yields touched 15%. And then three years later, almost three years later, there is the retest of those highs in yield. And the world was basically bearish and expecting higher highs in yields and a resumption of that terrible bear market or that opportunistic bear market. Now, can you draw a parallel between that and a potential retest of the lows of 2016 today? It's very loose. The comedy, what happened in September of 1981, the last uh, 
Thursday, I believe it was, in the month, is when Treasury issued the 15 and three quarters of 96, which were non-call life. And they had a terrible time getting those bonds out. If you recall, they had, there was pressure put on everybody. Uh, I, I thought that they were going to, you know, have the neighbors call me. You know, you, know, you got to buy this thing. You got to buy this thing. And they, I, I found it more profitable to be buying discount corporates at 20%. But at any rate, that was the pressure. And that was the all-time peak. And from then on, treasury rates were going down. Then, if you recall, they starting really over the winter time and gaining momentum as you got into the spring of '84, and then crescendoing around June 1st. Yes, you had this slide, and some well-respected people, people I really respected and respect, were saying, you know, Henry Kaufman, for example. Yeah. Henry was saying, well, you know, we're going to go back and go through. Yes, so was Milton Friedman. Yes. Well, Milton Friedman was the ultimate monetarist and the uh, Burl Sprinkle and the others. That that was the case. But the one thing they did not take into consideration was that here uh, I was, you know, managing pension funds and some insurance money. And what were the corporate pension funds doing at that time? Well, they were putting money in every single month or at the least every single quarter to fund their underfunded defined benefit plan. Because uh, 10 years prior to that, you had ERISA. And uh, once you had ERISA, then people had to start funding. And uh, that helped the markets uh, clearly survive the 74 debacle on the stock side. And it was a constant flow of money. And the other thing that was happening at that time is the life insurance companies were selling these GICs, guaranteed investment contracts, right. with rates as high as 16%. Um, I was on the board and chair of the investment committee at that time for Mutual of America. We didn't do it. And marketing department got very upset with me, but uh, because it just made no sense. It made no, you know, the math didn't work. Right, but applying work. this experience to the present day, we are seeing a worldwide panic in the securities that yield you, if not less than nothing, then nothing or less. I'm going to use different terminology. It's not a panic. It's a flow of funds phenomenon. Ah. And the central banks, I mean, these people are very well informed. It's a flow of funds. Part of the flow of funds is a movement of money from one part of the world to another. Part of the flow of funds is uh, the way that uh, some people who are advanced middle age, like you and me, are handling investments. I personally even do some of this because we have a foundation set up for research, and you need fixed amounts of money. Now you say, well, yeah, that's a great idea. Go back and buy the, those 15 and three quarters at par or the discounts at 20%. Well, they don't exist. Uh, you can go to high yield with a certain amount and say, well, that's a great idea until you look at where we are in the economic cycle. And when you look at the, the nature of things uh, in the loan market and so forth, the push, push, push for yield uh, leads 
uh, you know, some of the terms for the lender in, in bad shape. So you have a flow of funds into the market. You have this demand for yield and for safety. Now, Europe is very different than the U.S. The European Union and the situation the European Central Bank faces is very, very, very different than ours. The political scientists would say it's not all that different, but I, I disagree. Yeah, yeah. Arguing by regions is very different than arguing by countries. And so you have that along with a maturing population that saves a lot of money and they want to know that they can have it there in the future. In Japan, they feel secure about that. In Germany, they feel secure about that. In Italy, they feel less secure, same currency. In Greece, they used to feel less secure, same currency. And uh, I, I don't know how they feel in the UK right now. If I, if, if I were them, I'd be worried. But that's the setting. And so this part, you say, this is, is this logical? Not completely. What, how does this jive with history? It doesn't. And uh, the stock part of it is flow of funds. It's another part also that gets completely missed now. And that is that the middle of the market on the bond side, the people making charged with making markets, both sides, the investment banks, that has dwindled. Right. As a percent of the total market, it's tiny relative to 11 years. So, so when, if as and when this reverses, Dan, um, what do you see happening? Boy, I wish I knew. But what I do know is that there's a lot of levered money in the middle of the market, but it's not charged with making the market. The traders don't report to Jamie Dimon anymore. They report to shareholders who have one charge to them, and that's to make money trading this money. So you're going to have one thing I worry about in there. If that is indeed levered money and it's private money, at what point, what happens when you get a major swing in a market? Do you upset a lot of these these positions that are viewed quite correctly mathematically is completely hedged. When you lose the bid in the market, now we're talking bond market, uh, all of a sudden you have a case of whoops. And to what degree, and I don't know the answer, does this overlap at all with the stock market? In other words, are the same people who are trading high yield bonds on leverage doing the same thing with stocks? And you say, oh, yeah, but don't worry, because stocks are so, so liquid. Well, uh, yeah, Verizon is. What about, uh, you know, as you move down the, the line? And that's an unknown. Is this a valid worry? Yes, it is. Does it explain negative interest rates in Europe? No, it doesn't. In conclusion, Dan, how is the uh, Luma Sales Bond Fund playing all this? How are you positioning yourself for this most unusual world? <laughs> well, let me give you exact numbers. Let me see where I've got them. I think they're right here. Hang on. Hold for one second, please. Okay, here we are. First place, the bond fund is... is and has been now for a period of seven, eight months, as conservative as it's been in its existence, which goes back to 1991. And uh, I'm just going for the statistical descriptors here. All right, this is through last night. Right now, our average maturity is 5.11 in years. It used to run 13. 
the duration for those who use that, it's 349. The yield's okay. It's 29 at market right now. And the average quality is BAA1, right on the verge of single A. You move one tenth of 1% your single A. And that's two thirds of a letter higher than normal. And 40% of the fund matures in the within 12 months. It's people who woke up, you know, had gone to sleep two years ago and then woke up and looked at this would say, what happened? Uh, they, uh, you know, uh, what happened? And we did buy some long treasuries uh, early last November, but uh, the rest of the reserves were rolling over in, in bills and other short-term paper, high quality. It's a double A1 on the maturities under one year. And even in the most aggressive areas in the high yield space, we're at a BA1. So this is, and we actually had, you know, a couple inquiries asking if I was, are you still coming into the office type thing? <laughs> yes, we are, but we've had to adjust to a situation. It's not scary, but it, there is no incentive to take risk right now. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful place to leave it. And Dan Fuss, Vice Chairman, mind you, Vice Chairman of Luma Sales, and happy to be one, and the uh, eminent and long-serving portfolio manager of the Luma Sales Bond Fund. Thank you for being with Grants and with the Grants Current Yield Podcast on this historic, I, I'm going to call it historic moment in the history of interest rates. So thank you again, Dan. Well, thank you.